Hi, welcome to Under Control. My name is Bolai Shudik, and today's guest is Matt Mitchell, who is a tech fellow at Ford Foundation and founder of Crypto Harlem. Hi, Matt. Nice to have you here. How are you today? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Well, lovely, lovely. All right. Uh, listen, there are a lot of projects that you are involved. Could you give me a little background of yourself before we kick off this whole dialogue today? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm a human rights defender and a computer hacker. <laughs> so that's who I am. Um, I founded a thing called Crypto Harlem. I'm a tech fellow at a philanthropy called the Ford Foundation. Mm-hmm. And I also work to train um you know, folks who are working to make the world better. Wow, that's that's quite a quite an impressive set of of different areas that you're working on. Um, could you give me a little little background of of how how did you how did you get to this point uh, where you're working on three different areas, uh, helping a lot of people? How how did it started with you, or what was the motivation behind when you were, uh, say, in your early twenties? Oh yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm the child of immigrants. From the Caribbean. My dad's from the island of Grenada. My mom is from the island of Trinidad. Um, you know, what, growing up, we moved from the UK, where I was born, to the US, which is why I sound like this. And um, when I was a kid, the island of Grenada, my dad's island, was uh, involved in a three-day conflict with the United States. as a war. And it doesn't last that long, a small island. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot from that experience of like what it's like when truths are not the truth and what you see on the news can't be trusted because it's not the same as what you hear from family and friends on the phone. And so I really became sympathetic to folks who are kind of on being uh, perceived differently or watched and things like that. And then unreally, I got a job. It's like one of my first jobs. And it was this IT type job you know, like just setting up machines. And I think we were rolling out Windows new technology or something, I don't remember. And uh, about like two months into the job, they were, they were like, hey, let's gather us all into a room and then like, let's talk about what your real job is. And I was like, okay, I'm intrigued. What do you mean real job? And they said, you're here to help us um, monitor employees. And we're gonna be watching what they're doing and how they're doing it electronically on their machines, Um, especially those with foreign passports. And I was like, whoa, Whoa. hey, is this legal? And they said, "Uh, yeah, it's in their employee agreement. Maybe they didn't read it. Maybe it was fine print, but it's there. So I was like, "I, I can't believe this. Like, this is a thing. And no one I knew outside of work knew this was a thing. What year was this though? Uh, This is in the 90s, Mm -hmm. early 90s, you know, and uh, so like this is a common thing. Like every corporation does this is to protect the corporation. Sometimes it's in the marketing department. Sometimes it's in PR. Sometimes it's IT. But that's where the watchers live. And uh, maybe there's in corporate investigations unit or a due diligence unit. But they got some hackers up in there. And so, um, you know, I was like, I got to get out of this. This just doesn't fit well with my personal uh, morals, you know. But uh, the keywords in my resume, I didn't realize they were just 
perfect for another, you know, a surveiller. So mm -hmm. I got another job watching people, you know? So I was like, oh, this is really frustrating. <laughs> what were the things that you, you know, the company was asking you to look for? Were there any specific measures that you were told to do your job for? It looks like endpoint protection, but it's really focused on the humans. Uh, so uh, what that looks like is like, you'll put something on the machine that will monitor things like the size of the downloads, the size of the uploads, what network activity, every website that's being visited. It also does keyword searching. Um, so it's, it's, it could be a keylogger if that is audited, if that flag is switched, right? Because that's a huge amount of data. So they don't want to collect too much. Um, and yeah, that, and then it was, uh, a file that we can just pull up and, and see on a, basically like a SIM, you know, so we could see basically in like a, a monitoring, log monitoring software. And then we can silently report it. It was like, hey, look, if the needle is in the orange, the computer's telling you there's probably something here. You as a human, just give it another pair of eyes and then send it to division, whatever, you know? Wow. <laughs> and uh, one thing I learned was that the folks who were flagged some of them, you know, like when in my time I was there, they just, they weren't working there anymore. I'd go to their, their lab and they'd be like, what happened to this scientist? And they'd be like, yeah, he's not here anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the impetus for, for were things like um, sexual harassment cases and things like that. Uh, things where in, the company was just taken, like they had no idea. But then slowly given the power to see into all that, they were looking at performance. They were looking at things like, well, this person appears to be our hardest working person. Are they really? But was it Is rather industrial espionage? Was it rather uh, a matter of precaution how they try to like put it this whole uh, surveillance aspect? Yes, or that's exactly that's exactly why um, it's to prevent against one. Maybe this person's falsely accused of a human-related crime. Two, maybe there's something installed on their machine that's doing things and they're not really doing it. Mm -hmm. Three, maybe this is an insider threat. Mm -hmm. So how can we know? And so, but then given the tools that you have some basic governance on never to be used, break in case of emergency, emergencies, they're relative and slowly smaller things become emergencies. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's an uptick in what my team was doing, you know. Okay. All right. Um, so you so you went for the second job where you ended up pretty much in the same shoes where you just started off. What then? Well, luckily, um, the contractor that I was working for had um, a contract with the internet company, America Online. They would mail people CDs. <laughs> This is how you get a. This is how you get an account. This is how you visit the walled garden of the internet. Um, and so I started working there. You know, I'm a software engineer, and I I'm a computer hacker. So they needed me to just write code, which was a lot easier and felt a lot better. And in my mm -hmm. time there, I met folks. Um, it was who were doing like news blogging was really new. Um, there was just this new company they acquired called Weblogs Inc. And they were like, oh, blogging's the future. And it was a huge boost to their traffic. And it got people so excited that Ariana Huffington came in and I'm like, oh, this is great. I have this idea for a blog called the HuffPost, it's news. 
boom, next thing I know, I'm working for like a news org. <laughs> wow. And yeah, that led to me really be liking it. I liked working at a news org. I like there was a, a blog called Black Voices. It was about African-Americans. I like that. Um, and so I started working in media after that. My next jobs were all in news. So since that, mm -hmm. since that time, I've worked at uh, Time. I've worked at uh, um, CNN. I've worked for a bunch of different Turner outfits. I worked for the New York Times. Uh, so, you know, I really enjoyed being in a newsroom. One, I get to like use my code to do stuff that I felt was like highlighting truths and like telling people stories and making this world better that way. And the other part was like, you know, someone would be like, hey, I'm working with a secret source and they're going to write me this email. You, you said something about that. That's not good, right? And I was like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Let's sit down and talk. And we'd have like a brown bag lunch and me and one reporter would quickly become me and two and three. There'd be a small little crowd. And I was like, wow, there really is a need and an interest for some of the hacker skill stuff on how to be um, private and how to be careful with our data that I've learned and acquired over time. So did really did cool. you feel like there was a gap in the journalist's knowledge about how to protect their uh, their privacy and, and, the, and, the, and the topics that they're covering or? Yeah, 100%. Um, I would say your average journalist, you know, you go to J school, you get your, your degree, you get your, you know, whatever, you start applying for jobs, you're a freelancer at first, there's a lot of pressure to just file stories from a lot of different editors and make, build those relationships. You might be sending the ship, you know, pitching the same story to five different news orders, hoping somebody bites, it's a hustle. You finally get a job, you're working in the news, you start, you enter into a CMS system, like it's kind of like a super WordPress type thing. You start writing articles. Next thing you know, you're in the paper that people read every day. Mm -hmm. No point in that journey are people like, let's talk about encryption. You know, <laughs> you barely, like your average journalist is a strange animal where the motivation, time is the enemy. It's not really a team sport. You're, you work and you enjoy your colleagues, but you're just trying to get your name, your byline. You know, the story's by me on the next bigger story, on the next one. And, you know, there's not a lot of uh, room for things that slow you down, like being mm -hmm. private and being safe. Uh, why would they? I mean, is there a specific segment of journalists that you would refer to who really needs to protect their privacy or their entity or uh, the stuff that they work on? Or Well, there's an idea from the outside that if you're doing like national security or you know, you're covering corruption in, in the government or something, then you need to secure your stuff. But that's not really true. Actually, what happens is people who don't want the truth told uh, and they're sitting in seats of power, they can manipulate stuff. They can hire hacker mercenaries to come after folks. And hackers are lazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my people, but we're lazy. And we want to do the easiest thing first. You know, you do a, a contract um, and you get a, a, a completion bonus based on getting it done early. Otherwise, hackers would be like, yeah, it's taking an hour, an hour, it's taking another hour, you know? So like, it, you know, it's like, look, there's no honor amongst thieves. They know what it is. It's like finish early, get more. So yeah. you're not just going to like drag things out. Soft targets help you finish early. So instead of focusing on that very famous reporter, you're focusing on someone who works in culture, someone who works in Metro, someone who is doing stories about children's toys, because they're not thinking you're coming for them. Mm -hmm. And once you get into the content management system, you're in the content management system. Once you're in the machine that everyone plugs into, you could hop to the real target. And so actually every journalist needs to know a little bit about this stuff. 
Mm. Well, and how how do you start to go about this? Because I feel like it's it's quite a large chunk if you want to change the way how a global community of journalists are thinking about security and privacy, especially because, as you say, if if there is there is a the weakest uh, link of the chain effect in this whole situation, then everyone needs to be protected equally, not just the ones that are uh, most affected by a, a potential threat. Yeah, and this is where we make a difference from individual security to organizational security. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So it's like, look, you're not in the tundra with a wolf and a stick on your own. <laughs> you're in this organization. You work at a company with hundreds of other people. If your security is too high, fine, I'll back away. That fence is much easier to climb over. So yeah. now it becomes like a weakest link story where the security of everyone is equal to the laziest person who knows the least. Mm-hmm. And that's a fix that needs to be done on the organizational side, not the individual side. So you approach it totally differently. It's not like, yo, you should install Tresserit or Signal or something. It's like, what is um, our security policy, which is our understanding of where everyone is at? What is everyone complying to with like 80%? And in the beginning, it's like, oh, we're all locking down our laptops and we all that stuff. And someone in the back's like, I'm not doing that, right? So then you find the common denominator is very low, but that's mm-hmm. a good thing. That's truth. That's what you should find. And then you just make policies that move that up slowly mm-hmm. and rise all ships, you know? So and that's how you protect an actual news org, whether it's five investigators meeting at a coffee shop or it's a huge paper of global demand. Yeah, and that sounds like something where you would like to change a culture of, of a company. But when it comes to individuals and say there is a there's a person with, with a high threat possibility, uh, do you work with some of those people as well? I, I remember you mentioned it earlier. And, and what could be a potential threat for them? Uh, how do they live their life? How, uh, how do they, they find you and, uh, and stuff like this? Well, before I was working at a Ford Foundation, I worked for a private security firm. Mm-hmm. And they were, were luckily one of the few that like has legit clients only, like NGOs, lawyers, journalists. It was really cool. And um, what we would do is they would be like, look, this is what you do in the random you know, chance that there's a shooting. And they would set off like firearms uh, with blanks. They would have like controlled munitions and explosions and things tear gas and all that stuff. And then they would explain like, your body wants to do a couple different things, run maybe, freeze, you know, wait for help. None of those are the right place to start, but that's who you are. You can't fix it. Let's start there and map you towards safety. And then they'd be like, okay, we do simulations here. And after I went to a couple of their courses, I was like, I see. So I did the same thing. So I'd be like, these are two laptops. This one, the camera's owned and I can see it from the second one. And a lot of times people tell you and you put a post-it on your camera or something, but you've never seen it. And when you see that, you're like, whoa, that remote, remote access tool, I can see it next to this one. And you have both laptops in each hand and you're like, wow, that's a moment you don't forget. When I'm like, look, this is how you spoof a phone number. We're going to do this process and I'm, you're going to call yourself from another number in your contacts. And then your phone rings and it says, oh, it's my partner but it's really just you, you're like, whoa, I'll never trust the regular calling app again. So, you know, you got to make it visceral and real because people, you got to meet them where they're at. And Mm -hmm. this is just an extra thing to do on a long list that's important. So if you don't get that moment, that's like, oh, wow, this is real, you'll lose them. 
And that's what I think is the best approach, but you have to do it ethically. You got to get it with their permission. Also, you got to have the skills to know how to do that. Yeah, right. Um, and what lead you to uh, acquire these skills? Because there was a big gap starting corporate, figuring out the surveillance is not your thing. You develop some kind of entities towards that, and then you move to a news outlet and you met a lot of journalists who were uh, a part of this whole big thread that's out there. Uh, what happened in between? How did you acquire the skill set that, that you can help these journalists with? Oh, that's a great question. I acquired the skill set to help journalists because in a way that, you know, I was a kid and we had just moved here and everything was like a little bit different. The school's system was a little bit different. People talked a little bit different and they rolled out this machine and it was the one computer for the whole school. <laughs> Now every student gets a computer in a lot of schools. We had one computer for the whole school and uh, it was a Commodore pet computer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this thing? You know, and it showed us how to like use basic programming, this thing called logo, you draw and stuff with a turtle thing. And I was like, what? And my dad, he worked on the train yards and he'd always bring stuff home and take it apart. And I'd take apart my toys while he was doing that, pretend that was him. Then he'd put the stuff back together and my toys would be like forever disrepair. <laughs> But I learned that like inside everything is something. And sometimes even cooler than the dinosaur is like how that gear makes it walk and the springs and all the other stuff. And I was like, what's inside of this computer? How does it work? There's not springs in there. And I was captivated. And so my folks, I was like, yo, they're like, what do you want for the holidays? And I said, I want a computer, <laughs> which is unattainable for them at that point. Uh, we Eventually we, we got one, but uh, I ended up building one. But they were like, <laughs> how about a magazine subscription? Because mm -hmm. they thought it was like fishing. You want to be a fisherman? Here's Fish Magazine. But it was actually super frustrating. <laughs> People with their computers, you know. So, but they had, uh, it was called Compute. And in it, they had this machine language where you would just enter in this code. And I'd like look at it and enter it into graph paper. And I'd draw my little cardboard keyboard. And I'd tap on it and pretend I was on my keyboard, you know. Wait for the next one to show up. When the mailman showed up, I'd be like, oh, another Compute Mag. And uh, I'm a kid in my neighborhood. This dude, Ian, he had a computer, the IBM junior or whatever and his uh he was like listen my dad's got a computer in his like little business room a little library and i was like what and i got on there and he's like how are you doing all this and i was like doesn't everyone know this and i was running with weights on for so long that i just became like super computer skilled um and that led to my interest in tweaking the programs changing them changing other people's programs next thing you know you're hacking the programs and i met some hackers in, in school They were like, yo, this is how you can get stuff. And I was like, oh, this is cool. How do you guys get that game or that software? And they're like, oh, you can just take it. You know, this is like, you just snap your fingers and you pull it out of the air. And I was like, fascinating, but it doesn't feel like it's the right thing. And I, I realized I had a career ending injury as a hacker, which is empathy. Like I care mm -hmm. about other people. You fall and trip, like, I don't laugh. I want to pick you up. You can't be like that with a hacker. You know, you have to have a very limited worldview and, position on what's right or wrong and mm -hmm. it really ends with yourself so they were like yeah you got skills but you're a bummer to hang out with Matt yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh I um luckily I was on Long Island and there was this magazine called 2600 it's a hacker magazine and you could find it on some magazine news um you know where the newspapers were you could never it seemed like someone was just leaving them there like it's you know the people would like like I think we saw this you know so here 
And uh, I would read it cover to cover. And I finally went to a meeting and people didn't look the way I thought they would. You know, it'd be like, I'm the, you know, super hacker man 3000. And then you go there and it's like this like super, you know, hermit looking dude. And they all went around and introduced themselves. But when it got to me, they skipped me because they didn't think I was there for the meeting. They thought I was just some like black dude hanging out at McDonald's or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, like this is like a comic book. Why would you want to let everyone know your secret identity? I like being a fly on the wall. And that's mm-hmm. how I just kind of got into this thing. And I just built my skills from there. And I was like, you know, one day I'm going to need this to help other people, keep them safe from the people at school, to keep them safe for like, you know, people who are, you know, it's really like being a wizard from the future in a world where everyone leaves their doors unlocked. So I was like, I, one day people, folks are going to need help. And that's how I got into it. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest challenge when you are working with, say, journalists? Because you, you said something like you get to meet them at, at where they are. Uh, but is that the biggest challenge, really? Or is it just them being not aware of, of cyber threats, privacy, and, and so forth? Or how, how do you see this? I think the biggest challenge, you know, like I literally would meet them where they are. So it's like at their desk, in their village, in their country, whatever, um, is they have a net, they're, they're not <clears throat> risk averse. They're, they're not like a risk averse community. Like they jump and run towards the fire. They run too towards the noise. That's what makes you a good reporter. And that's really nice. It's like working with someone who's like really easily coachable. Most people just don't understand how news is made. They don't understand the pressures of being a reporter. And then they're overloading reporters with stuff that they would never, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think like the biggest mistake is no matter what the community is you're trying to safeguard or secure, you need to spend some time gaining their trust and understanding like they're experts at something, they're geniuses at something. You need to learn that thing and all your lessons need to be steeped in that language and that workflow and those pressures or no one's going to keep them up. They'll keep them up for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. But it won't really lead to a trajectory change where they end up. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll just undo it just as fast. Could you give me like three examples of which are the like most frequent advices that you need to give to these journalists? Like it can be very practical as well to yeah, like, yeah, yeah. keep like, your passwords like 10 digits or use this tool for uh messaging or use Telegram or whatever. What would be the three yeah, yeah, top I mean, advices? Like, well, uh, I usually they have a lot of uh knowledge that they've acquired <clears throat> from non-professionals some of it's great some of it doesn't work at all or it's horrible so you got to empty that cup and i'm just like okay look what are you doing you're taking notes right are you taking notes with a pen and paper they're like yeah i was like okay cool you're secure they're like i am and i'm like we're hackers not cat burglars yeah <laughs> yeah get a get a um a fireproof waterproof um bag those things are pretty cheap and put your stuff in there get, you go in with a lock or you can put a little thing on it you're pretty good like now someone needs to like show up at your house which does show up just that that does happen to a lot of reporters different parts of the world and then you gotta get two bags put one with some you know very boring reporting under the bed or under a floorboard people will search till they find they'll stop there yeah the real one is like deeper down you know somewhere that's cool but once it's electronic it's fair game that's my world so that's something that they start to understand the separation between what is really hackable and what becomes a physical problem. Mm-hmm. So I was like, anything you can offload to the physical world might make sense for some type of reporters. The next thing is um, that you would need to use, like if you're taking notes electronically, I tell them to use an encrypted note-taking app 
um, you know, in the, in the last lessons, I'm like, you have an app for everything, encrypted note-taking app. But the first lessons, it's uh, like standard notes is, for example, one of my favorite encrypted note-taking apps. It's on iPhone, Android, PC, Linux, Mac. It doesn't matter. It's free if you want it to be. You pay and it gets better, you know. But uh, for the beginning, I'm like, this is the only tool. It's called Signal. You have to do everything in there. And I teach them, like, you need to master this tool. And once you master one thing, you can go to the next thing. And don't have a multitude, have mastery instead. Right. That's the hard thing for them to learn. They don't realize. They're like, oh, I use this one and this one. It's almost like they become collectors of all these. And I'm like, no, you need to understand the core concepts. Like I was like, note to self is a feature in Signal. You put your own phone number in and you can write your own encrypted message to yourself. People don't know that. They've never seen it before. And I'm like, that's your note-taking app. You know, that's where move a file in there. Now you've moved a file to an encrypted part of your machine. You know, things like that. And I'm like, I also show, tell them that having it on 20 different things, like, you know, different laptops, different phones is not a good idea because there's 20 different things you need to safeguard. Just keep yeah. it on your daily driver. Keep it on that daily use, regular phone. And really just know everything about it. How do I verify that the person's number is really them? What does this QR code mean? All that stuff before you move to the next tool. And that might be a year, like no lie. So I'll be like, let's spend 12 months on this. And they're like, 12 months? And I'm like, yes, that's mastery level. You're gonna be using the same thing over and over as everything. It's not, it doesn't work well. It's not a Swiss army knife or it is maybe because no, <laughs> no, uh, not disparaging Swiss army knives, but everyone knows you have 10 tools that barely work instead of one tool that only works at one thing. So, you know, Signal's great at, uh, you know, being a simple, easy, no menus, no complicated things for beginners to try to step into. But then I quickly move them on to the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, right. So you're building it up all together, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Eventually you end up with the right tool for the right situation. Like when you open up the cabinet, you're not feeling well in, you know, medicine cabinet, if they only have aspirin for your headache or, you know, paracetamol or whatever we call Tylenol here, you know, like they only have that, you'll take it for everything. Bullet wound, you'll take it. Headache, you'll take it, you know, nose pressure. But eventually you're like, this one's what I take for this. This one's what I take for that. You know, this, I cut my finger, put a bandaid on it. You know what I mean? You're not rubbing Tylenol in there, but in the beginning, it's one piece of medicine. And eventually you become a doctor with like a tool bag. What would be the next step, like say a mid or more advanced way of, of working after, let's say you mastered Signal, what would be the next one or two steps? The next step I teach them is like how to encrypt their device. So if it's lost or stolen or, you know, a hacker picks it up, it's useless, right? Um, and in that lesson is also teaching them some basic forensics, like that password you type in every morning means nothing. <laughs> that like They're like shocked. They're like, what? And I'm like, that's permission to use the operating system. I don't want to use your operating system. I want to know what's in your C drive. I'm a hacker. I don't, I don't need to log into the front door. I could just plug a cable into your computer and drink all the data out. And they were just like, what? And I'm like, yeah, in fact, Max, they have a thing called target mode. You could just turn hit, hit a key and it restarts as a hard drive. And they're like, what? <laughs> So yeah, I'm like, yeah, this is all real. And then they're like, well, why do they do it like that? And how do I fix it? And they're asking the right questions because they're journalists. They're always asking questions. And you explain like, this is how we fix it. This is why it's we're going to full disk encrypt your machine. Um, now, when you lose it, it's useless. And then they're like, great. And then I'm like, they start learning like, oh, so my password actually means something now. 
my password is the name of my kid. That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> so that with that password managers and having something that's not even known to you, it's known to the program that you use becomes the next lesson. And eventually you kind of end up with what are they touching the most? They're using Microsoft Word the most. They're using a laptop the most. They're using a, a, some software to file a story to the, you know, let's lock down those things. So I look, I just really started, a, hey, I'm just going to hang out with you. Uh, my first day, I'm just going to time uh, what you're using the most, maybe ask you a few questions. And I, I stay really quiet. And those are the things you lock down next in the order you lock them down uh, and what they're touching the most before you start giving them like strange things they never thought about. But uh, eventually they start thinking about like, okay, I'm, I need to store my files someplace. When I send my files, they're not storing it this way, are they? And I'm like, yeah, they're not. And then they're like, I need to talk to my editor. I need to talk to the desk. You know, like they start getting the, they understand. And it's about building that curiosity and, and that, that uh, if you start off with the world's out to get you, it's hopeless. <laughs> then uh, that's not, you know, where you're going to go from there. So I teach them. There's this invisible stuff on your hands. It's called bacteria. They're little invisible monsters. They make you sick. If you use soap and water, you can wash your hands and they go away. If you use the same door of your roommates and they have these monsters on their hands because they use the bathroom and you're like, ew, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they need to wash their hands too. And they're like, oh, I got it. So I need to take small precautions. I get a big win out of that. Everyone around me needs to use those small precautions too to help me really be healthy. And then, yeah, that's and I, I just really talked to my like community health, just build it up to the next thing and the next thing. But there are things that are like, this is cancer and we haven't figured it out yet. You know, like there yeah. are things that if there's a nation state working on a, a zero day exploit at a Mac, like, yeah, there's no fix for that. But like I said, hackers are lazy. And even when you have that tool, it's not the first one you use. You go with the phishing email first. You go with all that basic stuff first because it's faster and easier and it gives you all the keys. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like they start learning those lessons and it's a, it's a good day. Right. No, that totally makes sense. And I think if we look at privacy as a hygiene, uh, question, then essentially we could summarize it that you help people to wash their hand and make sure that everyone else around them is washing their hand as well. Right. Yeah. And maybe taking a shower too. Yeah. <laughs> time to time. Um, cool. Great. Um, what about crypto Harlem? Could you tell me a bit about that? It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was working at the New York Times and we were covering quite a lot of things around the world. And there was this case of a, a young teenager. It was in my transition. I remember the case started when I was like at CNN. It was, uh, nobody was talking about it, but people used social media for the first time to really say like, shame on you news for not covering this story of a teenager in Florida who was shot and killed uh, blocks away from his home when he went to buy some candy, some Skittles, right? And uh, National news was like, okay, what is this? People tweeting us, Facebook pages. Like, it's like a moment in time that you can't really replicate. <laughs> so they brought the story to national attention. CNN sent people there. Now I'm at the New York Times, and it's the day the case is over. And the guy who uh, shot this teenager was acquitted. And I thought, man, this guy, just like a young black teenager, reminds me of a young version of myself. You know, and he had a little hoodie over his head, but you see this big smile, this goofy kid. Who could he have been? You know, could he have been me? Could he have been my friend, my colleague here at work? Anybody, but it's gone. And it really hit me hard. It hit everybody in the newsroom hard, but they were like, you know, dude, that sucks. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it does suck. But for me, 
I could barely get through the day. And um, one of my other black colleagues was like, yeah, I'm really dealing with this in a weird way. I, I feel like a family member dies. And I was like, yeah, I don't know why. I didn't expect this. And I was like, I need to do something. So I put that energy into teaching the folks in my community about surveillance. Because in this case, it was about community surveillance. Uh, community watch, looks for crime, saw this guy, started following him. We got into argument and a, a gun was pulled. The kid was killed. Now, um, I was like, wow, like that reminds me a lot of like my life of being working with surveillance. Really you know? cor so I, life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Crypto Harlem's really just teaching folks in the black community, like, look, this is how surveillance works. And there's a digital surveillance, which is even more insidious because you'll never see it. You can't feel them following you. You don't you don't like get a sense of those eyeballs. Right. But how would you go about the fact that, you know, also, Darlov talks about airports are introducing AI and face recognition. And majority of these outlets are saying that they do it for the cause of precaution. How would you battle that? Because as you say, it was a, a community surveillance. Like, how would you, how would you, how, what's your opinion in just in general about this? Sure. Like the good well, a couple versus bad. Is, a lot of these technologies are very complicated. And, you know, I understand machine learning and computer vision and software that works on that stuff. And it would just bore you to death reading about it. But you have to know before you could realize like, it doesn't work that well. And a lot of the marketing stuff is uh, it's not really that good. <laughs> You're basically training these machines to look for something out of uh, what you've already fed them. And if all these faces look the same, and even if they're different, you know, like the machine isn't that smart. It's actually kind of dumb and it makes a lot of really horrible mistakes. And the price of that mistake, if it's like you being a little delayed on a flight, that's okay, maybe. But it could lead to you being imprisoned or, you know, you're a terrorist or you're on a no-fly list. Well, that's, we shouldn't be using it. And it's, it's really like teaching the folks and everyone I can about like, this is how this stuff works in a really basic, easy to grasp way. And then let's level it up. Like this is how I can explain it to a child. This is how I can explain it to someone with a PhD in you know computer science. Um, and that stuff doesn't work. But the idea that we must keep people safe is a, is a genuine and real one. You know, like if we see a hundred people walk by, and then someone tells you like next week one of those people uh, is you know is uh, Jason from the horror movies, and he's going to go to the camp Crystal Lake and and kill a teenager. You're like, oh, I should stop that. Right? So you're like, yeah, okay. Like, well, how do we stop it? We don't know which one's Jason. Well, we can uh, talk to them. We can interview them. We can investigate. We can follow them and see which one's heading to Camp Crystal Lake. But the with the tap power like we have, much like the when I started working on this stuff, we can just read their emails. We can just listen to their phone calls. We can just, you know, know everything about all 100, all their hopes and dreams and fears and what they're going to do. And is that the price of, uh, of violating everyone's privacy and safety and like sense of agency to protect against uh, this one teenager to death, right? And then, okay, let's say this, let's say you, you feel like as a society that is worth the price. You have a hundred, it's a lot to go through. Let's just like say, what about these other ones? Like, and there's always a marginalized group in every country. And I learned from traveling the world, there's this group that people, don't even remember why, but they're suspicious. They're othered and their movements are just criminalized. And it's like, let's start looking at them first. And then you end up with like, not the same level of surveillance where some people in the community 
are living in a free or somewhat free world, while others are living in a Terminator 2 dystopian world uh, because of the levels of surveillance all around them, the criminality and othering that happens to them, like their basic behaviors. And you have a, a society that doesn't trust each other and turns against each other. And in that, it's like Batman, you know, like they, the Joker is like the criminals turned to a man they didn't fully understand. You end up turning to people and tools that will end everything you care about. Uh, and that's what I learned. Like, it's like a prison experiment. You and I are friends, but we decide like, oh, let's play prisoner for an hour. You know, like you act like the guard, Aquax, the prisoner. At the end of that hour, you're doing stuff you never would have thought ever because of the, the power that you're given. And because it's a silent, quiet power, it doesn't feel ugly. There's no blood on your hands. You know, the baton isn't weighing down your fist. Uh, and it's a dangerous power. That's one thing that I've learned. And can we create a world where there's an acceptable level of risk for an ex a huge amount of freedom and agency? And that's, what I'm, that's why I do this work. Because I think, yeah, you know, I, I think like privacy is not secrecy. Privacy is curtains in your windows. Yeah, you know right. Saying like privacy is a door so you can let someone in and invite them into your home and show them how cool your room is. You know, like it allows you to have that. And what would you say? What's the outcome for for the members from your community who are attending the Crypto Harlem and the trainings that you do for them? Uh, how how do you see them? What's the outcome? What happens with them afterward? How, how do you let them go afterward? Like okay can you name a few things that okay they are more cautious of this or they are uh more focused on that is there a few things like this yeah the outcome is like this um generationally they're scared there's these ideas that like we're being criminalized all marginalized communities right but now they're empowered and they know like what's real and what's not real there's a lot of like boogeyman under your bed type stuff and their myths and the other things i'm like wow it's amazing. It's very close to the truth. Let's explain how it works. But more importantly, let's explain who to talk to, who put it there, what you could do to push back against it, how it breaks. You know, like that is something that leaves people hopeful and feeling like they have control over this world that they've been forced to live in. Part part of the efforts that you're doing here is as well fighting against racism and fighting for equality as well, if my understanding is correct. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why I work with uh, Ford Foundation. Like their mission itself is fighting inequality, right? That's it. <laughs> it's a really interesting mission for a business, you know? And uh, they do that work by supporting, you know, people, organizations all around the world. You know, there's 11 offices around the world. Most of them, what you would call the global South, you know, like India and African offices, things like that, uh, South American offices and, you know, these are places where that power dynamic and that push between who, the, who is deciding what the status quo is and who's sitting in seats of power and who's really just trying to get a boot off their neck to breathe is very clear. Um, and it's nice to be there because it's very much in line with my work at Crypto Harlem. You know, like you're fighting racism and you realize like the connection to fighting sexism and fighting, uh, you know, homophobia and fighting other things. Sorry, I got a little New York City soundtrack. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But, uh, but um, and it, it's really great to speak to audiences who are ready for this message. They're never like, I have nothing to hide. They're like, where have you been? You know? Yeah, so, you know, Ford Foundation supports these organizations through bringing them together, 
sometimes introducing them to each other, convening them, which is great because they wouldn't necessarily know and they're stronger together. We also support them financially to the amount of 500 million a year, which is a huge, large contribution that can turn a small group of people who are trying to do the right thing into an NGO that's working in an office and like really helping people the right way. And it's great to do that. And my job there is strengthening the organization's cybersecurity uh, capacity. That's their understanding of this stuff, their, their appetite for this, and also knowing what small steps they can take to keep the organization from being wiped out from a cyber storm. <laughs> Is there a specific like segment that you're working with or a specific industry or a specific uh, geolocation that you're working with? In my particular job, no, it's actually, I, I work with a, a small group by maybe our numbers of like 370 different organizations from around the world that are part of this um, department called BUILD. And BUILD is about, instead of giving an annual grant and helping them with a project, giving them a grant for five years, year after year, they know they're going to get the same amount and looking at things that they didn't have time to do before, like, you know, maybe hire someone, uh, maybe un work on their leadership transition plan, maybe look at governance and human resources, things that we know and we've identified are important for an organization that's going to be around for generations. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times these are directly impacted people or someone who had a good idea and wanted to like help. And it doesn't mean like they understand like financial resiliency or all this other back office type stuff. And with Build, we help them with these decisions that they need to make because that will affect what the, where they land in five years and 10 years. And with cybersecurity, it's the same thing. It's always something you kind of know you need to deal with, but only when there's a ransomware attack that locked on every machine are you dealing with it? And that's probably when it's too late. You're on your back foot. So for you, is it more like a pre-attack area or is it a, a more like a post-mortem that you have to work on normally with these companies? I don't do a post-mortem, which is great because that takes such a long time to do it for 400 orgs. <laughs> I would, uh, I'd be doing it for years and years. So what I do is I teach them about the attacker mindset and then organizational security and what they need to implement. So like, I'll say, hey, do you have cybersecurity liability insurance? And they'll be like, what? <laughs> but that's actually really important. It's when you get a ransomware attack and the hackers are asking for like, you know, $10,000 in Bitcoin for every five machines. Well, you really feel like, I have a backup. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna use that machine, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they'll say, well, we also took some data we learn people don't always pay and you'll see some of it on this public website then they have your attention and they're like we're going to leak it all all over the place if you don't pay and now you're being extorted now if you have insurance they have someone who's a negotiator <clears throat> now negotiators are interesting because they obviously kind of understand both sides that's how they're able to get the price down mm -hmm. but they'll do it they'll get the price down for you they also will like pay a certain percentage of the cost of the what you'll end up paying to get your computers back. Yeah. And that could be something that allows you to actually keep running or just stops you dead. But then the second thing I ask them is, you know, do you have that security policy? You know, there's a, um, a website called usesoap.app 
dot uh, app and like with use soap you just fill out a basic questionnaire and at the end of it boom you have a security policy it's not a customized super personalized one but it's yours and you can add things to it and it's walking them through that journey we created this cybersecurity assessment uh, tool because I was like, listen, I get this question all the time and there is nothing that looks like the medical tent at a refugee camp where mm -hmm. you can just get a really quick you know, diagnosis. This person is sick level one. This one is sick level two. And then you can have a basic course of um, support and medical care for them. So with these orgs, they can fill out this survey, which is on our website now, and I developed this and brought in a team of like amazing cybersecurity rock stars, you know, like we got uh, Martin Gruten and Trin Nguyen, Runa Sandvik, who used to also work at the New York Times, uh, Laura Tish, this dude, Matt Hansen, uh, you know, like we're working on making this stuff accessible. So orgs that don't have a lot of capacity can give us a little bit of time and get a lot from it and really adopt these things in a way that as employees come and go, it's part of how your board works. It's part of how your um, your documentation works. It's how onboarding and offboarding employees work. So it's there to stay. Yeah. So you're trying to create an education material that's that's pretty much automized and and super simple and super adoptable for every kind of industry, every kind of uh, like size of organization all over the world. If if that's correct. Yeah, and in multiple languages. And it's a it's a That's daunting fantastic. task. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you. I mean, but we're we're here to make it work. And obviously, you know, I, I don't have hubris. I understand like getting a doctor's exam in a Manhattan uh, you know, doctor's office <laughs> in New York City and getting the refugee tent exam, you're not gonna get the same quality of exam. Right. But, but it's, it's better step, than where it? they start. Yeah, it's a step. We want to just get them on that journey. Right. Fantastic. Uh, Matt, listen, if there was an educational material, a book, so to say, or ebook or anything that you would recommend to anyone to, who is looking to start this journey and, and wash their hands and, and think more a bit about their privacy and security, would, would there be one that you would recommend to anyone? Yeah, there's a couple. I would say um, this group, Tactical Tech, they're based out of Berlin. And I used to work there as their like a director of digital safety and privacy. They have this thing, it's the data detox kit. So you go to datadetoxkit.org, I think. And it's just real plain speak. It's in a couple languages. And it's just like, hey, this is what washing your hands looks like. Basic hygiene, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an organization or you work in cybersecurity and you want to understand what NGOs face, read the Dark Basin report from a group called Citizen Lab. And it talks about four years of research and cyber mercenaries and all this other stuff that it's not what normal businesses would face. And if you're interested in black folks and marginalized people and how surveillance uh, has always been part of that community, which is great because it teaches you about surveillance for all marginalized communities, uh, read Dark Matters by Simone Brown. Um, it's about the surveillance of the black community and it's easily adoptable to anywhere in the world. And you learn from like 1800s to eight days ago, basically. Wow, very impressive. I'm super keen to get those books and, and read them and we're going to link them in the description. So if anyone is, you know, looking for the exact link and we're going to do that so you can find it. Super. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. I think anyone who listened in 
they they got quite a lot of knowledge and quite a lot of things they can get started with. They know the place, they know the what and and whereabouts. So I think this was quite a quite a useful educational piece that uh, uh, that you put together and that you explained today. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for the platform and thanks to the people who are listening to Under Control for giving some time, you know, and just hearing my voice. I, I greatly appreciate it. Just let's keep each other safe. Let's encrypt and let's keep, you know, keep things moving. Fantastic. And if everyone has a question, uh, we will also link your profile or uh, the way how they can reach you as well. So fantastic. Yeah, 100%. Super. I'll get back to them. Just not fast. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Man.